Father, what do we say? It is nothing short of an amazing grace that you have put us under. We say to you that we are grateful that we are no longer under the law. We have to have grace because we are failures. Prone to sin, loving the wrong, knowing a better way, but still choosing sin. Thank you, Jesus, for your death on the cross. We're all here because of that. Now speak through me and build us up this morning as we study your words to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to thank you. I promise you this will not be as perplexing as last week's sermon was. It won't be as long. Probably get an amen from the congregation from that one. It's fascinating how you guys are familiar with the, the dispensational perspective, but you don't know the covenant or the reform perspective on that yet, because it's a little more complicated to explain. Anyways, let's go back real quick. We'll finish up talking about the abomination of desolation. Um, so you can just... What is the abomination of desolation? Well, it is the sign. Um, if you look at this verse right here, Remember Matthew 24, 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen? And he's been referencing what? The destruction of the temple, okay? When will these things happen? And what will be the sign, and there it is, the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, if you remember, how did Jesus first answer them? In verses 4 through 14, he gave them a, 4 through 14, he gave them a list of general signs. Remember that? Can you guys tell me what those signs are? Because you need to know these things. Wars. So wars, you got that part down. Anything else? False Christs, what else? Persecution. Mm -hmm. Natural disasters, yep. The apostasy, turning away. And one more. The proclamation of the gospel, yep. Gospel outreach, global outreach, yep. So he didn't answer their question. They want to know this sign. So he gave them general signs. He answered it in verse 15, and that's where we've been spending our time. This is the sign that launches his return. Matthew 24, 15. Let's put it up right here on the screen. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and he writes, adds, let the reader understand. Now, Jesus referenced the abomination of desolation through Daniel the prophet. Okay? And we have looked in depth at Daniel 9, 24 through 27, one of the references. Daniel also references the abomination of desolation in chapter 11. And this morning we're going to briefly look at this historical event. And this makes me glad because I am not interpreting the text for you this morning. I'm going to give you a historical fact. Yeah, I'll take this, this verse and I'll tie it to an historical event. And we know these things are, are true. Not only the Bible talks about, there are other books that talk about these things. But... Um, this is not me projecting what I think is going to happen in the future. This has already happened. And so, 
that puts the pressure off me. <laughs> but I want, there's one point I want you to remember. Well, we don't have time to look at the entire 11th chapter of Daniel. We're going to focus on verses 21 through 35. But just, you may want to write this down, that the details of this prophecy in the 11th chapter of Daniel, particularly in verses 2 through 35, they are so historically accurate and historically verifiable that this section of Scripture um, has been the cause of all the attacks in the book of Daniel. Like, there's no way it was written in the 6th century about events happening in the 2nd century. So they, they date the book of Daniel, you know, written in the uh, late 2nd century, after the events happened, because it's just not possible. So you're looking at um, some very accurate and specific prophecies that were fulfilled. And particularly verses 2 through 35 speak of specific events about the Persian and Greek empires. And we know that because there are, there are Persian and Greek textbooks, history books, that detail all of these events and verify this prophecy. Okay? So we're going to see something that's quite accurate, down to the, the minute details that was actually fulfilled. Now, let me give you a little background of verses 2 through 20, because we look at verses 21 through 35 in our text this morning, Daniel chapter 11. But turn to Daniel 11, and while you're doing that, I will give you some background information of, of the first 20 verses. Because over a period of about 200 years, um, we're, you're going to be introduced to three kings. Ironically, for those of you who like uh, alliteration, they all start with A. There's Xerxes, which is also spelled Ahasuerus. There's Alexander. Who's that? Alexander the Great. And there's Antiochus the Great. Okay? Antiochus the Great. If you look at Daniel 11, verse 2, if you're there in your Bibles, he says, And I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. So we just, you know, we talked about those three kings, and they are Xerxes, I like, to, I like saying that name, Alexander the Great, and Antiochus the Great, okay? And look at verse 2 again. And then a fourth king. Then a fourth king will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now, I just also want to add this, that these are not the only kings that... Uh, there are more than four kings in Persia throughout history. We're just introduced to these three before the fourth because of this, uh, that's the focus of the prophecy. Now, virtually every Bible scholar, no matter what his views on eschatology, identifies uh, that abomination of desolation that we'll talk about in verse 31 as the sacrilege committed by... Antiochus IV, the Syrian king who ruled Palestine from 175 to 165 BC as a surrogate of the Greek Empire. So when Alexander died, history tells us what happened to his kingdom. Because he died how old? He was like 33 years old, I think. He conquered the known world. What happened to his kingdom? He had no heir. Split into amongst four generals, I believe it was. Okay? It was split. So you have these surrogate this Greek empire was still the world power, and they were going to be replaced very quickly by the Roman Empire, and we'll get into that in a moment. But it was, it was split, and you had these 
you know, surrogate leaders, of, and Antiochus was one of those surrogate Greek uh, leaders of the Greek Empire. Um, he took to himself the title Theos Epiphanes. And of course, what does Theos mean? Yeah, manifest God. So he viewed himself, he had a God complex, let's put it that way. Okay? His enemies named him Epimenes, which means madman or the insane one. And that's surprising, when he died in 163 BC, he was totally insane. Outraged to the point of madness because of his military defeats by the Jewish rebel Judas Maccabeus. Now the text of Daniel 11, 21 through 35 is about him, and that's where the, the chunk of the um, prophecy is in the whole chapter is about this. It describes the rule of Antiochus. So let's talk about Antiochus Epiphanes. Let's read verses 21 through 35, and then we'll briefly go through these verse for verse, and it won't take that long. In his place, a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception. He will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. He will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Chittim, or Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, and yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Then when they fall away, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, I know you perfectly understand everything that was just read there. You probably have no questions, so we can just close the service and all go home early today, right? We all understand that. Well, let me give you a little bit of a map that may give you a little bit more insight, okay, if you can see this. This is the uh, empire of Alexander. This is what they, the known world at the time. 
And what I want you to focus on is if you were to see, right here is what? Right around this area. What's that little strip of land called even today? Israel. Okay, that's where Israel is, all right? Right here. Okay, here's Egypt, you know, up to Israel, and then, you know, there's Damascus, Syria, and then on up here. Okay, so this was, all this blue area here is what Alexander the Great conquered, which included obviously what? You see down here? Egypt. But the focus is on, right here in Damascus, in this northern part, they were Seleucid kings. Down here, they were P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, Ptolemy, is that you say that? Egyptian kings, okay? And there was wars that, were, that we were going to read about back and forth. This is the king of the south, by the way. This is where Antiochus is going to be, up in here. And guess who gets to get trampled on between these wars? Israel. So you got that? That makes you a little bit of understanding of all of that. So let's break down. We're going to break this down verse by verse and just very, very quickly to give you an understanding of it. Now let's look at verse 21. In his place a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come at a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. What will happen historically? Well, first of all, Antiochus is described as a despicable person who follows the reign of Antiochus the Great. But the honor of kingship was not conferred upon him, meaning he had no right to reign. He was not a rightful heir. No legitimate claim to the throne. The true heir was Demetrius Soter, who was very young. And so what did Antiochus do? He claimed to be his lawful protector, his guardian. And he seized the throne by flattery and by buying off government leaders. So he gained the throne or the kingdom by intrigue. Exactly. Verse 22, the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. The overflowing forces refer to the Egyptians in the south. Antiochus Epiphanes literally devastated the Egyptians and their king. Verse 23, after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. Now this is very, very specific, but listen to what history tells us. After his war with Egypt, he tried to adopt a policy of friendship with his southern neighbor. However, it says he will practice deception. Do you know what he did? He, he himself violated the peace treaty in so many ways. He eventually took a small force of valiant men so as not to gain attention to what he was doing and to avoid suspicion, and he placed them in forts all throughout Egypt. And so when the time came, with the small force, he gained more power as he would overthrow parts of Egypt. Okay? He would eventually subdue them. Verse 24. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. He will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only... For a time. So under the, the guise of peace, that's the tranquility, what he does is he enters into the richest places of this province. He masses wealth. But what does he do with the wealth? 
He shared it with the people. And what was he doing? Well, why did he do that? He's trying to build a greater base and greater acceptance with those he conquered. And through deception, he accomplished what his fathers never could, an extensive power base. And whenever he saw a threat, he would plot their final destruction. So in other words, look at verse 24. On one hand, he's acting like Robin Hood, taking all of the, the plunder and all the riches and then giving it to the people. But on the other hand, he's acting like a, a, a king, a ruthless king, because anything that begins to move in his kingdom, he puts it down. And that's what he did. That's what history tells us. Verse 25. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. This is his second war with Egypt. The two armies met between Mount Cassius and Pelusium, and Antiochus got the victory. What does verse 25 tell us how he got the victory? Can anyone want to take a guess? The text says schemes will be devised against him. His counselors, the counselors of the Egyptian king himself, betrayed him. That's how Antiochus gained victory. I mean, you see how that specifically is, is spoken of in this prophecy? Verse 26, those who eat his choice food will destroy him. His army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. Those who eat the king of Egypt's food, his own household, his friends, courtiers, counselors, and generals of his army either gave him bad counsel or deserted him, have been corrupted by Antiochus. And the army of Antiochus was like a mighty inundation of water, bearing down and destroying the armies of the king of Egypt. And he overran all Egypt. Many were wounded and perished in this war, through this person's deception. Look at verse 27. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. What do you think that's talking about there in that, that verse? When leaders sit at a table, what do you think that means? Yep, exactly. Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of Syria, and history tells us it was Ptolemy Philometer, the king of Egypt, if I said it right, they had sat down for peace talks, but neither has any intention of honoring the terms of a false peace treaty. Thus the peace will not succeed. The peace made between them did not last, history tells us. But the end, it says, is still to come at the appointed time. Now, what does that mean? All events are determined by God, they're predetermined. So all the plans in the hearts of men, the peace, the wars, the kingdoms, they're all subject to the plan of God. And when they cease and when they're given into the hands of another ruler, happens at a fixed time appointed by God. And so what we see... The, the angel Gabriel relaying to David is just a reminder of the sovereignty of God in all of this. He is very specifically working out God's plan through these men. Verse 28, Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action and then return to his own land. Well, after Antioch's Epiphanes, 
has his, this deceitful meeting in the south. It happened in 170 A.D. He comes back into the land through what nation? He's in Egypt, and where's he going? Back north, so where does he have to travel through? Israel. And decides, I'm going to desecrate the land. Well, why would he do that? Well, a false rumor had spread in Judea that Antiochus was dead, and thus a small rebellion followed. And Antiochus, hearing of this, concluded the whole nation of the Jews had revolted from him. And therefore he took Judea, he therefore took Judea in his way from Egypt in order to suppress this rebellion. What did he do? Well, he ordered his soldiers to slay all they met. If they saw you, you were dead. Without mercy. Old and young, women and children, virgins and young men, and in three days' time, history tells us, 80,000 people were slain. Forty thousand were bound. And I don't know how many were sold, but countless. He went into the temple and look at and took all the vessels in it, all the gold and silver and hidden treasures. It was the value of, of a thousand and eighteen hundred talents. And that's not the abomination of desolation. He plundered and defiled the temple. He abolished daily sacrifices, killed a great many Jews, and left soldiers behind to keep things in control. Verse 29, at the appointed time he will turn and come into the south, but his last time, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. History tells us just two years later, in 168 AD, he again invades Egypt. But this time, there's a different outcome. Well, why? Look at verse 30. For ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action to come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Now, Kittim or Chittim is an ancient name for Cyprus. It's a reference for the Roman Empire. This means that the ships of the Roman fleet confront him. In other words, the Egyptians had enough. They went to the world power and said, can you stop this guy? He's a madman. And Rome travels on over. Antiochus, as he's attacking, sees these ships. And Rome is a, is a greater power now. And he stands down. He obeyed grudgingly. But in his grief and anger, he returns. What nation is he going to walk through to go back north? Israel, Exactly. And he unleashes his frustration upon the Jews with the help of who? What does it say? There's some that are going to forsake the Holy Covenant. He's going to show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. They're going to be Jewish traitors. They forsook their own covenant to support him. And he promised to reward them generously for their help. Now we get to the key verse, verse 31. Forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice for a second time, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. History tells us on December 14th, 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes sent Apollonius, a general of his, with an army of 20,000 men. 
to whom he gave orders to slay the men, sell the women and children, and who committed many outrages in the city and temple. He makes heathen idolatry mandatory in Israel. He has nakedness flaunted by supposed athletes in full view of the temple ground as he enforces Greek culture upon the Jews. Day sacrifice was once again made to cease, and the abomination of desolation is set up. Now, what was the abomination of desolation? Because we need to know this. He erects a statue of the main god of the Greeks, which was, of course, Zeus. On the very altar in the temple, he claims to be Zeus incarnate, because his name is what? Antiochus Epiphanes. He's also Theos, the God-man. He demands that he be worshipped. He slays a pig on the altar in the temple. He forces the priest to eat the pork, which is, of course, an unclean food. And by this act, he abominates the temple and makes it desolate. No Jew would ever worship there because it was now unclean. See, Antiochus was doing his best to not only exterminate the Jewish people, but also to eliminate the religion from the earth. History tells us that is what he did, and that, therefore, tells us a little more about what is the abomination of desolation. Verse 32, by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. In other words, he promised to reward the Jews who followed his orders. And there were those who forsook their holy covenant to obey him. But as is always the case, there's a remnant who know their God and remain faithful. They were strong in the Lord and the power of his might, and they held fast to their God. And they took action, it says. Well, how did they do that? They did it in two ways, primarily. In verse 33, those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. So first thing they did, what the Lord did, he raised up people in times of this great apostasy to instruct the faithful, the learned, the wise, who knew the word of God, to teach them how they should behave and exhort them to retain the doctrines that they were taught and the ordinances that they were taught, all of their faith, while refusing the doctrines of men. Accordingly, the people resist the threats and endured all kinds of suffering, racks and tortures, and uh, all kinds of punishment and death in every shape. And they did it with great courage. Some died by the sword, some died by the flame. They were burnt alive in caves where they fled for shelter. And others, as a mother in her seven boys, we'll get to that in a moment here, they were cast into heated cauldrons of brass. They're not inspired scripture, not in the canon of God, our 66 books of the Bible, but First and Second Maccabees are a reliable historical record of what happened. Second uh, Maccabees tells the story of this woman. She's a, a family of seven sons. They think her name was Elysier. Um, and they all sacrificed their lives in the name of religious freedom. 
Um, Antiochus outlaws observance of Jewish holidays in worship, and when this mother and her seven sons were arrested for breaking these laws, uh, they're tortured by the king. Antiochus was there, and he was trying to convince them to worship him, turn away from your God. And the mother would speak in Hebrew, and he wouldn't want them to do that because he didn't speak Hebrew, and she would exhort them to her seven sons, saying, you, you know, you, would, you should die rather than listen to this man. Stay faithful to God. He attempts to feed them swine flesh. It says the mother who acts with a woman's reasoning and a man's courage encourages her son to refuse to obey the king. And they all choose martyrdom. Verse 34. Now when they fall, they'll be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy. This is the second way they resisted. A small group of faithful Jews who opposed the godlessness of Antiochus and trusted God to enable them to fight back were led by a Jewish priest named Mattathias with his five sons. They gathered an army and resist Antiochus Epiphanes. And his son Judas, nicknamed Maccabeus, or the hammerer, was one of the heroes of this revolt. And many Jews laid down their lives for their city, their temple, and their faith. And finally they won. And on December 14th in 165 B.C., the temple was purified, the altar dedicated so that people could worship once again. The Jews celebrate this occasion annually with the Feast of Lights, which we know as what? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Seeing Mattathias and his son succeed, some apostate Jews who sided with Antiochus are going to switch teams. They joined them by pretending to be on the side of the Jews. And they were commended for their bravery and courage when in reality they selfishly sought to share in their glory. After history tells us that's exactly what in the 6th century B.C. Gabriel revealed to Daniel. Many will join with them in hypocrisy. I mean, you're talking incredibly accurate and detailed you know, prophetic words played out. I mean, is there any doubt that you have that God is sovereign, directing your steps. He is. He is. Verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. This was a time of testing and refining for the Jewish people when they had to decide to obey God, the God of their fathers, and possibly, possibly be slain or submit to the pagan, the pagan Syrian leaders and live as traitors to their faith. And their enemy, Antiochus Epiphanes, died in Persia two years later in 163. Now, I need to introduce you something that is very, very important. I want you to write this down, this word, prophetic perspective. I got this from Kim Riddlebarger, but you can understand it in a number of ways because this is what makes apocalyptic literature in the end times so difficult to interpret. This is what, um, and this is uh, in his book, A Case for Amillennialism, Kim Riddlebarger wrote this. You need to understand this. The interpretation of Old Testament prophecy can be tricky business. There are specific instances in the scriptures when a prophet foretold what appears to be a single future event 
But as history unfolded, it became clear that the original prophecy referred to multiple events. Certain prophecies may have double or multiple fulfillments. So in the 6th century BC, this was written down by Daniel. In 168 BC, what happened? The bombs of desolation occurred. Okay? What does Jesus say in Matthew 24 about the abomination of desolation? It's going to come again. So how in the world do we know how to plan for it? I mean, not plan for it, but how to predict it, right? This is why we hold on loosely to what you're, you know, I was you know, telling you guys that just think of the, Joel's prophecy in, in Pentecost, what happened? The Spirit fell. And Peter quoted Joel's prophecy as fulfillment of that, right? But Joel's prophecy also includes, or includes the sky, what? Turned red, and remember the, the, the moon didn't give us light, and all that, and the stars were falling, and all that stuff. Um, and obviously, it was, that's a future event of his second coming. So it has multiple meanings, and it makes it incredibly difficult for us to interpret these and do our best to give you a, a, a biblical um, interpretation of these end-time events. So this sacrilege committed by Enoch's Epiphanes in the 2nd century B.C., we believe it's a foretaste and a preview of the, this final kind of sacrilege that will be committed in the end time. For Gabriel closes this section about Antiochus Epiphanes by reminding Daniel that what he had related to him had implications for Israel in what? What does verse 35 say? In the time of the end. You see that? That clearly wasn't the end. Although we had spoken about leaders who would appear after the fall of Persia, Daniel could see in those events some of the things that would happen to the people of God in the end times. This was especially true of Antiochus Epiphanes, who again, he's generally understood to be a clear picture of a future what? Antichrist. Okay? Now Paul speaks of this, okay, and this is not me, this is what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In fact, just turn there, since this is the last verse we're going to look at, and we're almost done with the sermon, and we'll close here in a minute. This is, what Paul's, this is who Paul's referring to a future Antichrist, okay, based upon Daniel and what Gabriel revealed to Daniel, okay? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, okay, starting in verse 1. Actually, verse 2. Actually, verse 1. It's like I'm caught in traffic between, what, DuPont and Olympia? Is that what it is? Yeah. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we know what this is talking about. They obviously wanted to know when he's going to come again, and like we do. And so he's addressing this very issue of his second coming and our gathering to him. So we know he's going to come again, and we're going to be gathered to him. And they would want to know those things like we did back in the, the first century. He says, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect the day of the Lord has come. In other words, some heresy was going around that what had happened already. It had already come again. He says, let no one in any way deceive you. And how do we know? 
what he tells us right here. And he just repeats the same thing that basically Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15. For it will not come unless what? The apostasy, which is a turning away from the faith, comes first. That means that what? It's going to happen before an apostasy, typically. If it's a good time, are you going to fall away from your faith? If it's a hard time, are people going to fall away from their faith? Yeah, there's going to be then what? Persecution. So there's going to be all those signs. Remember that? Persecution and apostasy. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the apostasy will be what? Well, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So now the Antichrist, this last individual that commits the abomination of desolation, okay, how do you know what he's going to do? Well, what did Antioch's Epiphanies do? He went to the temple set up a statue and said, worship me as God, right? Well, look what, what Paul says here. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, despite himself as being God. Now that is exactly, or it is almost exactly like what I just read to you from the 11th chapter of Daniel. That is the... According to Daniel, what? Abomination of desolation. Okay? So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that there are in the future, and whether you believe this is Daniel's 70th week, you're a dispensationalist, there's one more week, uh, you know, it's the great tribulation and all that will happen in that seven-year period, or if you don't believe it, if it's already been fulfilled, we talked last week in, in Jesus, there's still going to be all these signs happening, and he's going to come again. And in that time frame, there's going to be this person will rise up and commit this abomination. And so we think, what? We think that either if you're dispensatious, they're going to rebuild the temple, literally. The sacrifices will start, they'll be stopped, and he will demand to be worshipped. And then, uh, pardon my language, all hell breaks loose, all the bad stuff happens. And then three and a half years later, Jesus Christ returns. Or what? It's, it's going to happen not in that way, but in a different way. There will be some ruler who will rise up okay, and demand to be worshipped. All right? And it won't happen in Israel, because what is Israel? All of us. We are all Israel. So the ha- only thing we can conclude is that perhaps it will happen in the church. What that looks like, I don't know. But the point being is that we have not only a reference in Daniel 9, in Daniel 11, and even Daniel chapter 12, which basically goes over all the same stuff. We also have Jesus referencing this event. Okay, We have Paul mentioning this event, in a sense. And so, you know, it looked like we want to keep things in a nice little box and so it's easy to understand and you just can't do that with eschatology. There are multiple fulfillments of this. So remember that phrase, prophetic perspective. Okay? Prophetic perspective. Now, any questions? We were done, too, because it's like, yeah, I'm not going to go another 20 minutes like I did last week. Okay? The funny thing is, this was like, 
eight pages. Last week was 10 pages, but it went to like forever, it seemed like. And you guys, God bless you. You stayed with me, but it was like a lot of blank looks in your faces because you're not familiar with that covenant perspective, which has been the historic perspective of the church. Okay? But... And again, I, I think the dispensationalists, they have brought this stuff to the forefront and made us look at these things and study them and see where we uh, are right and wrong and so on. Just like that, all the Old Testament believers and Jews were wrong with that. It was all, they didn't see a gap of time between his first and second coming. It was all going to happen at once. So we hold on loosely to these things. Okay? That is the abomination of desolation. I just want to say this about this end time event that Daniel referenced the last 33 through 35, it paints a picture of suffering. Do you see that? It's time of, of, of refinement, of a purging. Um, and Daniel obviously knew that his people, the Jews, would endure great suffering for their faith. That some would apostatize. They'd fall away from their faith and join the enemy. The others would trust the Lord and do great exploits. Now that sounds like what Jesus says, right? In Matthew 24. There's going to be what? One of the signs is persecution and apostasy. So he is simply repeating what was revealed to Daniel. But no matter how difficult the times, what we see in history and what will happen in the future, God always has a remnant, the faithful. They will keep his covenant to the very, very end. And if that is true, which I believe it is, Daniel prophesied about it, Jesus said it, then the question for us is this, are you ready for his return? I've already taught you last Sunday school, what was going to happen? What do I see happening in our future, in our country, which is already happening? There's persecution and suffering. Well, you better be able to suffer and to suffer well and to prove yourself as you endure to the end. Because there will be people alive when he comes again. That we know, because there will be those that are going to be, when he comes again, gathered to him. Amen? All right. Won't you stand with me? We'll close with the song this morning. Lord, you've always had an enemy that opposes you and copies you and mimics you in so many different ways. I thank you that you have revealed to us what will happen. And that's your nature. This is coming. I want you to know this. Be prepared. And so, Lord, prepare us to be able to be ready when you come again. And if it, your will is for us to suffer, may we do it unto your glory. For your sake. And bless us as we close with this last song. In Jesus' name, amen.